Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. It's been not even 10 years since ACLU versus Myriad, and yet today's landscape is so far removed from the days of uh, high-priced BRCA-only testing. It's amazing. The move to multi-gene panels was contested by doctors uncomfortable with unfamiliar genes and lower-risk variants, but today these pan-cancer susceptibility panels are the norm. And what's on these panels and how much do we know today about how to use them? Are today's panels like the Goldilocks bears, too big, too small, or just right? So not being able to answer any of those questions myself, I have brought in expertise with fancy credentials. <laughs> Dr. Allison Curian earned her MD uh, at Harvard Medical School, I think I've heard of that, completed her residency in internal medicine at Mass General, and then trained in medical oncology and earned her master's of science degree in epidemiology at Stanford, where she now works. Her research focuses on the identification of women with elevated breast and gynecological cancer risk and on the development and evaluation of novel techniques for early cancer detection and risk reduction. As director of the Stanford Women's Clinical Cancer Genetics Program, her practice centers on women at high risk of breast and gynecologic cancers. Welcome to the program, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So let me launch right into that central question. Today's cancer panels, are we at this sweet spot? And I, I yeah, let's talk about like what's on them. Are, are we at the right spot now? What a great question. And I think we continue to struggle with it as we get the capacity to add more and more. Uh, I will say that I think from a clinical utility perspective, there is probably a set of genes related to cancer risk that I think tend to be relatively endorsed, agreed upon by various different guidelines as clinically relevant. And I would say that the size of that gene set is probably in range of 40 to 50 genes, genes for which there are guidelines about which we would change practice. And to me, that is sort of the core set of what I think is important to do in the clinic. I think the question about going above or below that sweet spot is certainly where it gets interesting. And I'm happy to give thoughts about that if that's of interest. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you, I don't honestly know how many genes are on most of today's right. panel. Right. Yeah. So, so I think it varies. Um, there are panels that I think of as perhaps smaller and a bit more conservative. So a clinical sort of multi-gene panel might have 28 to 30 genes on it, and that might be a smaller one. Uh, there are some from different labs that I think of as being around 45 to 50 genes, and they might have names like common hereditary cancer panel or things like that. Um, and I think of those as really covering the ones for which guidelines of National Comprehensive Cancer Network, American Cancer Society, others really sort of weigh in together. And I think are often rooted in groups like uh, ClinGen coming together and thinking about what constitutes enough evidence to call this clinically important. So I think of it as sort of that 40 to 50 gene number. Now, certainly the default of some laboratories is to go much bigger. Um, and I think the biggest panel that most of us would send, the number keeps growing, but is in the range of sort of 150, 160. And so it's always a question of, do you, do you need that extra 100 genes or not? Yeah. Well, the question of, so 
this is related to this next question that I have for you in terms of sweet spot, which is, I have to say that when I trained, which is the last time that I did any cancer counseling, that was like 20, 20 years, let's, let's generously call it 20 years ago. Um, I believe we told people that the chance of getting back a variant of uncertain significance was something like 12%, and that seemed huge, right? And then that number came down. So I was somewhat surprised to learn quite recently that number is not, once again, way bigger than it ever was. That's and right. there was sort of a, a Twitter, a very interesting uh, Twitter disagreement over whether that was an okay thing or not an okay thing. So that's the other sweet spot question. Um, sure is. Do you yeah, think that their current rates of variants of uncertain significance are okay? What a great question. And we've done some research in this area. You know, when I think about sort of the old world, and I trained about 20 years ago, too. So, you know, I think we're of the same vintage for sure. Um, but so so when I think about that, I think of sort of ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology and other organization thresholds for genetic testing being oh, around 10 to 15 percent. And that was really based on the likelihood of finding a VUS being comparable, as I recall. Right. So sort of saying, you know, we think it's reasonable to test if your chance of having a pathogenic variant in BRCA1 or BRCA2 is around the same as or bigger than the chance of having a VUS. And we all worried. We worried that if there was a VUS, it would be incredibly stressful. They would immediately lead to mismanagement, all sorts of things. Right. So, so I grew up with thinking of that as, as sort of a reasonable deterrent for genetic testing. And of course, with the cost so high, that was really the main factor, but I thought of the US as being there too. Um, but so absolutely agree with you, when we test more genes, genes we don't know as well, and as we'll talk about in populations that haven't been tested as much, lo and behold, of course, what do we get but lots of the US. And so in many ways, I think the market forces and the technology have made it such that we sort of just can't worry about it anymore, right? I mean, it's when you test lots of genes, you're going to get these variants. And on some level, I think even those of us who are trained to worry about them have sort of come around to say, counseling patients, they're going to expect them. It's not a very big deal. Don't lose sleep over it, right, has become the norm. So I think that that increasingly is where things are going. Super, super interesting. Are we reaching enough people so I think it's a great question. And, you know, again, that sort of plays into the VUS question a little bit. We've done some work largely using large population-based data sets. So a lot of our recent work has used SEER, the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Registries of two states. We've worked in California and Georgia. So it gets the whole state, every cancer patient. And we've actually linked that to, to genetic testing results from major laboratories to look at things like who's getting tested for what and what's the VUS rate. Not surprisingly, over the period that you mentioned, you know, a decade ago, as rates of testing and numbers of genes tested have gone up, so is the VUS rate. But I think the key is that it's not equal by race, ethnicity, that it has gone up much more notably and quickly with the number of genes tested in racial ethnic minority groups, notably African-American and Asian to some extent and Hispanic, than in non-Hispanic whites. So I think that's all getting to that question that you asked, are we testing enough people? So I think historically lesser access in certain groups has meant that we understand the spectrum of normal much less well in those groups. We're much more likely to call something a VUS in certain groups. And again, does that matter? Well, it matters if the U.S. are not managed correctly, and we can talk about that question. But I think that's sort of the crux of it all. 
And I want to get to that question, but I was just, I'm not going to ask you to name any names because I know that would be rude. But um, just when you're listening to you talk about the size of the panels and uh, do you think that there is any correlation at all at this point between price point and what's a better panel? I don't. Yeah. I don't. I think there's a handful of labs, and I'm not going to name names either, but that are reliable, that have shown that they have analytic validity and that, you know, they, I think, do a good job of curating results, of following the U.S., all of those sorts of things. CLIA certified, and I think there are about five of them or so. And those are the ones that I would say most of us in the field feel comfortably using. And within those, I think there's not a lot to choose between all our high quality. I think prices are comparable. That's my two cents. Yeah. So you, I mentioned in the beginning that when they first introduced panels, I remember going to a meeting, uh, a meeting of uh, genetic counselor oncology. I I don't know why I was at this meeting, to be honest. (laughs) I was just keeping somebody company because no no sense that I belong there. Uh, But they worked with, it was in, in Texas and they worked in big cities and then small sure. areas and so on. And, and, and they were just introducing panels mm-hmm. and people were saying, my, the, 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 their doctors were insisting on testing for the fewest number of genes possible. Like they were so petrified of these panels because they just yeah. didn't know what to say right. for anything that really wasn't BRCA one or two. Right. 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 Uh, and I feel their pain. <laughs> I feel their pain. Like at that moment in time, I didn't know what to say, and it was difficult. And I don't know that any of us had good information for people no. at that moment in time. I agree. So, um, doctors might be seen as the rate limiting step right now in terms of our ability, because you talked about the importance of the counseling piece to make sure that someone with, like, if you're doing a test that is 40% VUS rate. You damn well better have somebody on the other end to tell them, don't worry about this, right? Totally agree. And uh, we doctors are so often the problem. (laughs) I I don't feel that way. I'm a doctor-friendly genetic counselor. Don't worry. I often do. I'm joking. But not a lot because I think it's true. I, I think it also gets to the question of as genetics gets you know, more accessible and cheaper, all of that is good, right? But at the same time, in many ways, the technology has made it more complicated. So, you know, I agree. I think many non-specialists can figure out what to do with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 test and, you know, can explain it to a patient, maybe not perfectly, but reasonably well. Very different when you're throwing in all sorts of genes that they don't understand very well. And so while, you know, this is becoming more accessible and more broadly clinically indicated, and we can talk about that too, at the same time, the results are getting more complex, which is a real challenge, I think, for both clinicians and patients. So it gets to these issues of who should control ordering and who should be sort of the catcher on the other end, just as you said, right, that somebody orders a test that maybe is biting off more than they can chew. How do we catch the patient on the other end? And so I think all of these things are are really in flux at the moment and very interesting. So that is, that is interesting. So let me divide it into two pieces. Do you think that doctors are doing a good job ordering tests? Because that's more likely to be what they're doing, right? I mean, I think it's interesting for me because for genetic counseling, the field, yeah. cancer has always been our cutting edge in terms of specialists, right? Yeah. Like we're going into all these other fields, but we're 20 years ahead in in right. in, in, in incorporating cancer genetics into into practice. Well, I think in cancer over the last decade, so many things happened at once and you very appropriately picked out that that 
date, which was so important, right? I feel like, you know, for us, it was around 2012, 2013, really, when all of a sudden, you know, prices dropped. Prices that morning for a BRCA test were 3,400, and by the evening, they were like 1,500, right? And then they went down further. So it's just remarkable the way that changed things. But the other forces that are, again, in many ways linked, right, are certainly multiple gene panels coming in. But also, if you look at oncology, increasingly, we have to test more and more patients because our treatments are crucial and depend upon it. So for example, PARP inhibitors. The PARP inhibitors are drugs that are targeted to germline mutations, notably BRCA1 and BRCA2, probably PALB2 as well. They have now been shown to save lives in early stage breast cancer. Not a small problem, early stage breast cancer, right? You have to test these people. And so that being an issue, right, I think it's it's become incredibly relevant to picking treatment. It's become relevant for a huge number of patients, and it's time sensitive. So it's this deluge of everything all at once. And I think genetic counselors, you know, I feel are, you know, like gold, basically an incredibly scarce resource, and we need more of them. But certainly the field sort of never anticipated this kind of demand. So how do we deal with this issue of the need to test so many patients quickly and appropriately with providers on the front end who don't always know how to do that? I wish I could tell you I had the right answer. I think that we are all trying to figure out the right answer with many different models of care. And of course, COVID-19 has made that even more interesting. Okay, let me ask about that. So I didn't expect to. COVID-19 has made that interesting yeah. And in, in, just in terms of, including, yeah. I don't know, I can't guess. Yeah. You telehealth. So, yeah. so the thing about it is telehealth and telehealth has been really remarkable in that, at least for my institution and I think many others, before the pandemic, we weren't routinely allowed to do this because we weren't reimbursed. And so that, of course, was always the issue that if you can't you know, get this care paid for, the institutions are not excited about us doing it. So that was the issue. We now are in a setting after the pandemic began where, of course, this is reimbursed and many programs have gone completely to telehealth, ours has. And I think there are pros and cons, but it certainly has allowed us to see many, many more patients, including cancer patients who might otherwise feel too ill to come in and to do saliva tests, which again have made things easy. So that's sort of a new thread of novel possibilities for genetic counseling and care delivery. So we talked a, a bit about the job that people are doing, that physicians are doing in terms of the ordering. Yep. Um, so what about the explanation on the, the back end, right? Is is it uh, that was obviously a problem yes. 10 years ago. Is it less? Yes. No. <laughs> no. 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 Okay. I think it's more of a problem. I um, mean, again, not to impugn anybody, um, but I think it's it's gotten more complicated, right? So people had enough trouble figuring out what to do with a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 mutation or pathogenic variant. What do you do with ATM? What do you do with PALB2, right? So I think... All of these things are, are complicated and challenging. I mean, I know what I think we do with them, but that's because I'm a big geek and I hang out with genetic counselors and this is my job. But I, I think it's very hard for a community oncologist who is busy treating lots of different kinds of cancers and doing lots of things. And I think, of course, the challenge for cancer is you're dealing with two genomes, right? One is the germline and one is the tumor. And so figuring out all of those issues is also quite complicated. So looking ahead, do you think that genetic counselors has a role in terms of the gene, the, the cancer testing the for treatment? I mean, testing the cancer itself, or will that be just something that's an automatic part of 
oncology and, and doesn't yeah. require a bringing in somebody? I think over the last five or six years, as testing the tumor has become routine and at many centers, you know, any advanced cancer is getting the tumor sequenced and often earlier stage ones as well. Traditionally, at most centers, that has not been the province of the genetic counselor. That's sort of been something the oncologists deal with. But I think increasingly, as we recognize that there are lots of things found in the tumor that need to be dealt with in the germline, we will see more involvement of genetic counselors, or at least I think we should. And what about in the traditional province of the genetic counselor in the germline? Right. Um, how much of that do you think will get absorbed into practice as it's not so unfamiliar? And how much do you see the genetic counselor maintaining like a primary role there? So we need them more than ever, in my opinion. Um, and I think that there are several things genetic counselors do beautifully, but but really do so much better than any other clinician. Um, certainly thinking about risk and explaining what this test does and what it doesn't do. Uh, certainly explaining sort of an uninformative negative, right? We didn't find anything, but you still have all this family history. We can't say your risk is low. Right. So that's a key one. And and probably the most important is remembering the family. So I don't think any other clinicians are focused on remembering the family or figuring out how to get anybody else tested. So I think those are three things that are really absolutely crucial. Um, and we need genetic counselors for that more than ever. I appreciate I do. I deeply appreciate <laughs> that so much of this interview has been this pay in to genetic counselors. It's, it's know your audience, Allison. It's very, very I good. I can't resist. It's just true. <laughs> Let me ask you a question about the future of genetic testing, not genetic, not to genetic yeah. counseling, um, where where you see it going. So I, I, I mean, I don't think there's anybody in the field who wouldn't fully appreciate and agree with you in terms of the people who are underrepresented in our current databases, and that has to get better. And we all know it, and we know it's a matter of time. Um, and it it will get better. What about the quality of testing and predictive information itself? So, so there's been some innovations, um, including uh, flexing to our, looking at RNA se uh, sequencing along with DNA sequencing. What do you think about the potential of those to add to our our? Yeah. It's a great question. I think, you know, again, it, it depends, but most of the time I see the RNA sequencing is as sort of incremental and not giving the answer a huge amount of the time, at least in my experience, right? I think of it as probably single digits most of the time that, that really useful information is added by that. In its current iteration, again, in my practice and that of our group, the challenge has been in this era of telehealth where we're contactless, right? And we're doing our visits over video and then we're sending people a saliva kit at home. That works really well. Typically to add the RNA, we have to get a blood draw. And so it's the logistics of we have to bring them into the hospital or we have to send a truck to their house, all of which is doable, but it does make you ask, when is it worth that extra few percent? So right now I think that's the calculus most of the time. Oh, yeah, interesting. So. As a final question, because I know we need to wrap up, I just want you to give me your overview on state of play. Like, what is, what's the thing that, that causes you the most, you know, 2 a.m. anxiety? Like, where would you like to see us get better? It's a great question. I have been asked at many recent meetings to conduct debates about things. And so it's sort of funny. I've, I've been asked to debate pro and con on the question of should we test every breast cancer patient? I have slides on both 
opinion. <laughs> but, 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 I, but I have to tell you, I think that's the wrong question. I think the question is what we do when we get the results. And that's on doctors. And truly, you know, this is something where figuring out how we manage results, both in terms of screening, in terms of risk reduction, and in oncology, we're talking about stakes like surgery. So this is a big deal. And in targeting therapies, including cancer therapies like chemotherapy and other medications to the results, not overreacting, not underreacting, but getting it right. That's what I worry about the most. And I think the future really needs to be thinking about how to do that better. Interesting. When you said that you have on either side of debates, I thought for sure you were going to go to, should we be testing everybody? No, we can go there too. Um, We will be soon, I'm sure. And I think there's there's nothing wrong with that as long as you know what you're doing when you get the results. And I think there are lots of data that show that that could be done better. Our own data and that of others have shown that. So I, I think we will soon be there. I think the more involvement we can have by experts, namely genetic counselors, potentially others, but genetic counselors I think are the most suited here, the better off everybody will be as we learn how to integrate this explosion of exciting information into our practice of oncology. We are training genetic counselors as fast as we can. <laughs> Your <laughs> institution and ours, right? Keep yeah. Big going. Yeah. We we graduated twenty six of them yesterday. Outstanding. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I think they're like all employed. It's an, it's amazing what's <laughs> our, going our on. And, and throughout the need. Um Allison, I appreciate your time so much. Really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. All the usual stuff. Go to the website, subscribe, follow me on Twitter, and stay safe. Bye, everybody. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.